Bike races and bike events are back in a big way in 2021. And if you are an Active Pass member, you get access to some of the coolest bike events around. That's right, it's the Roll Massif lineup of events. Eight events gravel, road, and mountain bike sprinkled throughout the spring, summer, and fall. You can learn all about them by going to rollmassive.com. And if you are an ActivePass member, you get 25% off registration to any of these events. Plus, you get free entry to the June 6th Elephant Rock ride down in Douglas County, Colorado. What is Elephant Rock? It's a true Colorado cycling classic dating back more than 30 years. There is the 100-mile course, the 60-mile course, and the 44-mile course. Plus, there is a gravel course, 28.5 miles, and a family ride that's eight miles. So there's something for every member of the family. You can come down, make an entire weekend out of it, and expose anyone in your family to cycling with one of these great distances. So to learn more about all the cool stuff you get with ActivePass, go to velonews.com forward slash ActivePass. You can learn about the events, the deal from sponsors, training advice, magazines, books, all the cool stuff you get. Again, velonews.com forward slash ActivePass. Okay, let's get on with today's show. Uh, welcome back to the Villain News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on a Wednesday morning here. We're uh, a day later than normal this week with the Villain News Podcast. I was on a short mini family vacation up in the mountains, which uh, corresponded to uh, towing my daughter around in the snow as she freaked out and cried. But that's a whole other story for a different podcast. Uh, before we get to today's podcast, um, you know, we are recording today. Uh, with a heavy heart here in uh, Boulder, Colorado, our world was shattered this week with um, an unbelievable and terrible act of violence. We had a mass shooting at a grocery store, King Supers, not far from where I'm recording today. It's a store that uh, everyone in the Vela News and outside family knows well if you live in Boulder, Colorado. Um, and the whole thing has completely disrupted life in Boulder, in Boulder County in Colorado at large. And, um, you know, I don't have a ton to add to, you know, I could talk all hour about my feelings and emotions around the thing other than to say that, you know, we here at Vela News are just completely shocked and, and blown away by this awful act. And our hearts go out to anyone who is impacted um, by it. And, um, you know, that's, that's where I am with it at this point. I was a junior in high school in Colorado when the Columbine shooting happened, 1999. It was not far away from where I was in high school. Um, I had people I knew through debate club who were impacted by that. And here we are more than 20 years later, and it is still has become a part of American life. And it's just, it's, it's something that's awful. Um, anyway, we have a lot to get to on today's podcast. We had racing this past weekend with Trofeo Alfredo Binda and Milana Sanremo and Trek Segafredo having a dominant weekend winning both races. We're going to get to that and we're going to hear from Trek Segafredo's general manager, Luca Guercelena, talking all about the team's success in the early season, both the men's and the women's teams, and some of the attitude that's driving that success, some of the backstory. Um, Andy ta caught up with Luca Guercelena, and I'm, I'm really psyched to get to that interview. Uh, we also have News, breaking news going on that uh, Perry Roubaix potentially is postponed this year due to COVID, potentially canceled or postponed. We're going to talk about that news story 
um, some of the information coming from our various sources about what that means for Roubaix and then the Flemish classics. Um, we have some races to preview with Gent Wevelgem going on this weekend. Uh, we have the E3 Saxo Classic, which may have already gone off by the time you listen to this podcast, but we're going to preview some of these races. And yeah, we're just going to get to it. A lot of analysis. We have rivalries, Wout Van Aert versus Matthew Vanderpoel, Tom Bonin versus Cancellara. We have so much to get to. And that's why I'm very excited to welcome Jim Cotton and Andy Hood onto the podcast. Jim, I'm going to start with you. You wrote some great stuff on the site Monday and Tuesday, analyzing Milana San Remo. And, you know, look, Jasper Steuven escapes for the win. But like you, I had my eye on Wout Van Aert and Matthew Vanderpoel. What are, what are your takes and your takeaways about how those guys raced that race and why they did not end up winning? San Remo, as they always say, is one of the hardest races to, uh, to actually win. And I think... Um, the fact that it was there was a big tailwind all day made it potentially some were saying less selective than normal. But yeah, I, it was a great win from Sturvin. But I think like everyone, I was quite surprised to not see Matthew Vanderpool and Wout Van Aert kind of figure more in the finale, like with there being less of a selection. And the two things that really stood out for me, like one from each rider, was that Matthew Vanderpool was mm, perhaps perhaps too almost too relaxed about the race like um there was one point on the Poggio just before all the attacks started flying with um Alaphilippe and Van Aert where Van der Poel was like in 20th position or something and you know he's got the power to to come back to fight his way up through the field to respond to those attacks and he did but what does that do after 280k when you've got to try and you know, do a bunch sprint uh, five minutes later. So I think for Vanderpool, there was a bit of a positioning thing. And for Van Aert, so the the race lands at the bottom of the Poggio with this complete pick and mix of riders. There's like Caleb Ewan, Van Aert, um, Sturman, Sagan. And he said after the race that he felt a lot of people were watching him as, you know, he's been on such good form and he's defending champion. So when Sturman dashes off up the road, on the way to the win, a lot of people were looking at Van Aert to do the pulling and he didn't want to just tow the race back together to a bunch sprint, which he could then lose. And as Sturvin just went further and further away, I think he, he ended up doing it anyway. And he still finished third, but had he not had to do that work, then it could have been different. Yeah, Hoodie, when you think back to that race and what unfolded. I mean, something that sticks in my mind was the presence of Caleb Ewan in that group and how that changed the dynamic. But uh, what was your takeaway from some of the big stars up there? You know, Peter Sagan is up there, Caleb Ewan, Matthew Vanderpool, Wild Van Aert, Tom Pidcock. Um, did you, any, any, any memories of riders playing their cards particularly well or badly come to mind? Yeah, it was impressive with, uh, Caleb Ewan up there obviously had the legs to stay with the big guns up the Poggio. It also just showed how fast the race was by the fact that when Alaphilippe finally did go, he didn't really go very far because the speed was so high. Um, one thing what Jim was saying was about Matteo Vanderpool, kind of, uh, you know, what really was confirmed in this race is that his team is going to be a factor and lack of a team will be a big factor going into these, some of these bigger races. 
he was basically alone, uh, you know, really in this decisive part of the Poggio and the Cipresa. And you had, um, you know, Jumbo Visma really set that high pace over the Cipresa to kind of tamp down any sort of hint of a uh, Vanderpool uh, early attack. Um, so I think you can't overlook how strong these guys are individually, but the team still is a huge factor in these classics. And I think that could play against Vanderpool going into some of these bigger races uh, with all the big teams really fighting at full speed. And going back to, uh, you know, who was there, who wasn't there, uh, basically everyone was there. Gilbert wasn't there. Unfortunately, he was trying that elusive fifth uh, monument. Didn't plan out for him. I think uh, Ophilgio has one more left in his legs next year in his final contract. We'll see if he can pull off the miracle. But I think uh, Caleb Yuno was hoping that Gilbert would have been there to help him. But uh, uh, everybody, you know, at the end of this hard race at San Remo, most people are alone anyway. Yeah, something that came out to, that, that stuck with me too is, you know, Matthew Vanderpool has shown himself to have these explosive attacks. You know, he can have this short burst of intense power after a long sustained time of intense power. And I just wonder if this year's edition of Milano San Remo was just not the race for that strength to come into play. You know, it was either going to be a bunch sprint because of the tailwind and because the climbs are so gradual, or it was going to be, you know, a sneak attack move where everyone is kind of caught looking at each other, which is what we saw. It's like Vanderpool is so strong. Everyone knows he's going to go. Everyone knows he's strong. So if he does go, people are going to be on him. And on a gradual climb like the Poggio, because look, this the Cipressa, you know, no one, I think that I was heard some stat. It's been like 20 years or something like that since someone made it to the finish line off the Cipressa. So that's probably not going to happen. So you're going to have to do it on the Poggio. And yeah, it's just that that climb isn't steep enough and long enough for the Vanderpool mojo to really, really come into play. Yeah, I was speaking to the one of the sports directors from Yumbo Visma uh, just yesterday, actually. And I asked him about the way San Remo played out and how uh, Wout van Aert and Matthew van der Poel didn't have as much impact. And he said it, it was exactly like what you said, Fred, because because the race wasn't selective enough and is arguably in brackets, in uh, quotation marks, too easy, that the, the massive strength of van Aert and van der Poel didn't have as much an impact because they couldn't make it have such an impact. Whereas... In Flanders and Roubaix, only the strongest make it to the final selection with, say, 10K to go. Whereas at San Remo, a lot of different people can do it. And they did Saturday. Yeah. I mean, it was quote unquote easy. I mean, it's so bizarre to call a 300 kilometer race that ends with, you know, that level of power output easy. But the group was pretty big. And, you know, all it took was Jasper Steuben to make a move like that and for everyone to hesitate and look at each other for a little while for the race to be won. You know, Hoodie, you talked to Luca Guercialena. This is obviously the biggest win for Jasper Steuben, a guy who we had on our radar for a long time. You know, he was a junior world champion. He's won Omloop Het Nusblad. He's won Kurna Brussels Kurna. He's never really gotten that monument. He finally has that monument. You know, what can you say about what this victory means for Jasper Steuben and also Trek Segafredo? Yeah, it means a lot to that organization. And I think it's important to point out, too, that Steuben's victory is really – he has to thank Craig Anderson, who came across, bridged out to him, and Steuben can kind of get behind him and really kind of catch his breath and kind of just saved a few watts for him to come back over the top and have the legs to fend off the bunch. Because I think had that not happened, 
I don't think he was going to make it because it was still very close when I think maybe a second or whatever, but by the time the pack was on him. So had uh, Craig Edison not come across and kind of, you know, it was only just for maybe a couple hundred meters collaborated with Steuben, just kind of gave him that little extra edge that he needed to make it to the line. But it shows you that uh, in San Remo, an attack like that can work. And that's how Cancellaro won uh, way back in the day. Kind of did that last final K, just time trialed away from the bunch in that moment of hesitation. It was interesting. In fact, when I was talking to Guertulena, he was talking about that. He said that was the tactic they wanted to play. It was almost like Cancellara card because they knew, you know, he's not going to beat those guys in a bunch sprint. He knew that they probably couldn't, Steuben couldn't get over the top of the Poggio if the big guys did go because he's just a little bit bigger kind of style of rider. So they knew that he said if he had the legs, the card they were going to play was that surprise card and just try to play that out of, of going down to the Via Roma because I don't know if you guys have ridden that, but it's a very technical descent, but very fast. And once you hit that uh, that last K or so on the Via Roma, you know, where the Flam Rouge is, it's just a power straight. So that's where guys like, you know, a Conchalado, a big motor that Steven has, you can make it to the line. And that's what happened on Saturday. Yeah. I mean, not a total surprise. Like I said, Steven's been up there in these races, but I've never seen him as a rider on the same level as Conchalara. So when he did go... I was like, oh, well, he's doing the Cancellara thing, but he's no Cancellara. And to see him pull it off, um, no, it, it's a big, big win for that team, especially because I feel like Trek Segafredo, ever since Cancellara retired in 2016, has been the classics team that like, it's like the, it's like the person who has everything, but they can't put it together. You know, they have strong riders, they have great director sportif, they have a deep bench, they have experienced riders. But they always seem to get like fourth place at the big monuments. You know, John Degenkolb was the star rider. Jasper Steuben and Mads Peters Pedersen were kind of the understudies, you know, the guys waiting for their opportunities. And when you lined Trek Segafredo up against some of the other squads on paper, they were okay, maybe a step behind Dakuna Quickstep, but not that big of a step. But it never seemed to work out for them. And Hoodie, I'm curious, what... Uh, what was the feeling from Gorchelena and others in the Trek universe about why things are working for them now after this sort of three to four seasons of them being close but never really getting over the hump at one of these monuments? Well, I think it's a couple of things. You know, part of it is, you know, investing in riders and having patience. And that's what's happened with Steuben as well as Mats Peterson. Both came into that organization fairly young. Uh, it takes a couple of years really to get the depth and strength to kind of really compete in these monuments that are six hours plus of racing. Uh, it's pretty rare that a rider, a young rider, could come in and excel immediately. Um, and then also, I think with the organization, you know, they had that deep kind of a classics tradition. And you're right. I mean, uh, Dagan Cole came in, didn't quite have the performances they were hoping for. And they won that Tour de France stage with him on the cobbles a couple of years after. Um you know, Dagenkolb was really impacted by that training crash he had with, uh, you know, back in the day on the Costa Blanca with, uh, uh, you know, all the all the somewhat riders got injured. And it really is kind of, that was a before and after for Dagenkolb's career because before that, he won San Remo, he won Pedro Bay, and Dagenkolb's been chasing that form ever since, hasn't really ever got back to that level. Um, so it's all about uh, having faith in the riders that this, that you're, are on your team. I mean, they know that they're not going to have the variety and depth of, of a roster in the classics that the quick step does. And they don't have that Cancellara guy anymore. So they're, they're going into this classic season, looking to manipulate and exploit the riders they have. And Hey, it's worked for him. I mean, Peterson's had a couple of big wins. 
He won Gail Vogelman last year coming over the top of, uh, you know, Vanderpool and Van Aert. And they won San Remo. So, you know, they're right there in that top echelon of teams. Maybe they're not the favorite, but they're right there in those top five teams. Corner Bristol's Corner as well with Peterson. So I, I actually put them up there. I mean, you know, so you see sometimes in sports, it's like a winning attitude and that taste of success. You can get some momentum to take into the big races. So that's that's really interesting. I always had my eye on them. I remember being at Flanders in uh, 2019 and 17 and always going up and interviewing them. And it was sort of this like, oh, you know, oh, sad sack type. You know, we were right there. They were always there. They were always there right in the moment that stuff went down. They just didn't make the move or they didn't they didn't go with the move or they were like they were like the guys who were forced to chase after the winning move went up the road. So finally, they were the ones making everyone else do the chasing. And they weren't just the only ones making everyone else do the chasing because a day later at Trofeo Alfredo Binda. Super cool hilly explosive classic that we've seen end in bunch sprints, small group solo breakaways. It was Elisa Longo Borghini who rocketed out of that front group on the, I believe, the penultimate climb and long, painful breakaway to win to give uh, Trek Sigafredo the sweep of the weekend. Jim, you watched that race. You wrote the race report, uh, read some of the comments coming out of that team afterwards. I mean, what do you make of uh, Elisa's big win and the fact that they toppled the mighty scary SD works at this race. It was a it was a great race to watch actually, even though it was quite kind of a long solo breakaway. It's a spectacular kind of scenery and a great uh, route, but uh, it was a real good win for Longo Borghini. So she was set up. It was a great uh, sort of team team performance really, which is what Trek women's team really thrives off. So she was set up on this climb by. Um, Taylor Wiles and Ruth Winder and uh, she just Longo Borghini just kind of rocketed away and the, there was a strong chase group behind her there was like Mariana Voss and Utrecht Ludwig and Katrina Neuadoma and a lot of people but she um, Longo Borghini just had the motor just to kind of fend, fend it off and um, for the first time really this season SD Works were just nowhere I think they didn't get any riders in the top 10 i think um admittedly anna van der bregen wasn't racing and they had a couple of strong riders at another race somewhere in belgium i can't remember the name but i think for trek it was a <clears throat> an important win just ahead of the the big cobbled races um this week after after the sd works had really really kind of wiped the floor with the first few races of the year yeah, to me, Jim, this was one of those races that can make a mark a turning point in a rider's career. We've seen Elisa Longo Borghini win big races in sort of, uh, you know, from small groups, burst of speed inside the final kilometer, winning a sprint, you know, being able to follow Anna van der Breggen and then bigger in a sprint, that type of stuff. I cannot, for the life of me, and look, listeners, please write me if I'm wrong here, remember her having such a dramatic win that was both a strategic win, but a just a show of brute strength win. I mean, she was away for a long time. And like you said, the chase group was class riders. Mariana Voss, you know, SD Works had multiple riders in there. They were all, they seemed to be working pretty well. And just the advantage was not coming down. And so I look at that as a, whoa, head turning type of moment. Like Elisa Longor Borghini, I've always kind of thought of her as maybe a half step below Van de Bregen and Van Vluten. But with Van Vluten, 
being somewhat anonymous this year and Van der Bregen playing the riding a lot of the team card. I mean, she's been very strong. I see this as an emphatic win for Trek Segafredo and Elisa Longo-Borghini and maybe potential that like she's kind of the big star there. You know, Lizzie Dynan wants to win the cobbled races and I'm really keen to see how well she does there. But boy, a win like that for Longo-Borghini, that to me is sort of a turning point moment in her career. And, and I'm really psyched to see it and psyched to see what uh, what comes next for her because we have a bunch of exciting racing coming up with the cobbles. And guys, we got to get to it. You know, we have news that broke earlier today, reported by French publication Le Parisien, which, you know, kind of confirmed some of the rumblings we've been hearing around that uh, Paris-Roubaix may be postponed or potentially canceled because of surging COVID-19 numbers in northern France. Andy, this is a story you've been keeping your eyes on for a couple of weeks now. What is the latest update there and what have you been hearing from your sources about what this means for the race? and how the teams and uh, other races uh, could or could not proceed. Yeah, with, with Perry Robay, there's been a kind of rumors over just the last week or two that as things get worse in Europe, unfortunately, you know, there's, there's kind of, they're calling it almost a fourth wave of COVID infections across parts of Europe now. And it's pretty slow out of the gate with some of the um, vaccinations over here in Europe. So there's a lot of kind of larger health issues that, that Europe's grappling with, and, it, and it's going to be playing out across racing, and it, we could see it happen uh, perhaps as soon as this weekend. I mean, there's uh, Belgium is also facing stricter health uh, controls going into perhaps as soon as we do this podcast this evening, going into the weekend. And there's a lot of questions, you know, will it impact uh, uh, Harold Becker and uh, Gan Velgenham and then going into Flanders? Uh, sources are telling me that the Flanders Classic races, which are Velgenham uh, as well as Tour Flanders, that they've been basically assured that with the protocols they have in place, their races will still happen, fingers crossed. Whereas uh, if, if the uh, Paris-Roubaix, which is down in France, uh, with the health of restrictions there might be stricter than what Belgium's going to impose. And again, we might see a postponement of what happened last year. It was postponed October. And then, of course, another wave, and then the race was just canceled outright. So hopefully that won't happen. I think, um, obviously, while it, the race organizers are doing everything they can to make Roubaix and the Belgian uh, classics this weekend happen, I think uh, I saw an interesting quote somewhere this week. I think it was from from a French outlet sort of saying that just there's, there's much more public and official backing for cycling in Belgium compared to in France that it gives these Belgian races a bit of a kind of an advantage over Roubaix, say. I think the actual quote was, in Belgium, cycling's a religion, but in France, it's a hindrance or something like that. So, yeah, I think Roubaix, there is a big question mark over that, but fingers crossed there's not. So let's just see. So it sounds like in some of these initial reports, and again, nothing is confirmed at this point. We may have to wait an entire week to get confirmation on a cancellation or a rescheduling, but it sounds like in some of these reports, there was talk about it being moved to later in the season, October, almost like after uh, Lombardia, which, you know, again, we're going to have to wait to see how that shuffles out. But let's say for this con- the sake of this conversation that that does happen. I'm curious, uh, Hoodie and Jim, to get your perspective on what that would mean for some of these classic stars. You know, we've seen... Matthew Vanderpoel go from cyclocross into these early classics. We've seen Vote Van Aert 
do altitude camps, you know, building up for this huge block of racing that culminates with Flanders and Roubaix. And then all of a sudden you remove Roubaix out of the equation and you tack it on to the back of the season. I, I'm curious to get your take on like what that means for the riders and teams. Yeah, it would throw a huge uh, wrench into the whole kind of schedule because the traditional way of doing the classics is a lot of those big classics guys, they're already ramping up their training in November to be ready for the spring classics in the next season going into February, March, and April. So to have Perio Bay at the very end of that uh, kind of process, at the end of the calendar, we'll have to kind of rebuild a peak and then try to unload and then come back into already training for the next season. But I think, you know, one thing that the sport learned, though, from last year was to kind of go with the flow. These things are out of their hands, of the race organizers, out of the hands of the teams, and the riders are just being told where they have to show up anyway. So I think it's far from ideal, And uh, but we also saw some pretty surprising and unpredictable racing as a result last year, and we're seeing that play out again already into this 2021 so if it's rescheduled it's rescheduled let's just hope that it actually happens this year though if it is moved back to october let's hope by then we'll see the race especially for the women's robe there's a lot of anticipation for that first ever women's Roubaix. Let's hope it happens this year. Yeah. I mean, I feel for the riders, especially so the women's Roubaix. It's like so many riders that we talked to in the early season, early part of the season talked about women's Roubaix being their biggest objective for the year, you know, scheduling their whole training cycle around it, their racing cycle. And for that to then be moved again for the second year in a row, ah, I just feel for them. You know, this, this past 18 months or so has been an exercise in these, um, lifestyles that are so catered towards these very specific events in the calendar being completely upended and um, that has to cause a significant amount of stress on the individuals. But like Hoodie said, I think that maybe one thing they've learned is like, boy, racing during the era of COVID-19, you do kind of have to go with the flow. So guys, as we get into the Cobble Classics with Gent Webble game coming up this weekend, um, Flanders a week from Sunday – E3, uh, Varagam, some of these big races on the calendar. You know, one of the storylines that seems to be there every year, time in, time out, is um, Quick Step and the question of whether or not that team is going to rule the classics. And, you know, the added wrinkle this year, which is, you know, continuation of last year, is Quick Step with Philippe and the team strength going up against these two very strong individuals, uh, Matthew Vanderpool and Wout Van Aert. Hoodie, you wrote a piece about this for the site. I'm really curious what your take is on Quick Step's team strength and strategy as it pertains to these two strong riders heading into uh, the big Cobble Classics. It's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, Quick Step always has that multiple card option. That's what they bring to these Classics. They have two, three, four people who can win in different scenarios. Whereas uh, Yumbo Visma and Alpes and Phoenix both really have their one, you know, their one card. One trick ponies with uh, Van Out and Vanderpool. So Lefebvre still believes that their kind of flood strategy will work against those guys. You isolate them and then you start attacking them and they won't be able to chase every move because if they do, they'll have someone else waiting in the wings to come over the top. But having said that, uh, you know, they are like the three tenors, you know, Vanderpool, Van Aert, and Alaphilippe. Alaphilippe won't be there at Robay, but he will be there at uh, Flanders. So but you, know, you can't overlook uh, Peter Sagan's coming back into form. AG2R is going to be there. Greg Segafredo is going to be there. I think it's going to be one of the deepest and most competitive classic seasons we've seen in a long, long time. Uh, last question for you both before we get to Luca Guercielena. Hoodie, you wrote a piece 
on the site. I believe, Jim, you participated in this too. Uh, trying to make the argument that Matthew Vanderpool versus Wout Van Aert, the rivalry that's setting the cycling world ablaze right now, is a better rivalry than Tom Bonin versus Fabian Cancellara, or has the potential to be a better rivalry, at least, uh, than those guys. I disagree with this take vehemently. I think Cancellara versus Bonin, potentially the best rivalry we'll ever see in cycling. But I want you to make your case for why this could be. Andy, I will start with you. Why are you so jazzed up on Vanderpool and Van Aert versus Cancellara versus Bonin? Yeah, I think we're at the dawn of a, a new era in, in the belt. It's a generational change. And these guys are coming in with kind of a different mindset and a different way of racing. They're, they're, they race. They're not afraid to lose when they race. And you've seen that already with uh, Vanderpool a few times this year. Some of his attacks and tactics haven't played out and he just kind of brushes it off. Um, but, I mean, I do agree certainly that Bowden and Conchalada, you know, they, they have a huge head start on these guys in terms of number of monuments they won. Uh, I think they won between the two of them 13 whereas uh, they have one each right now. So they have a lot of catching up to do. Uh, but I think a bigger part of uh, what's happening now is there's just more people at a higher level racing all at the same time in the classics. I think when you had Cancellara and Bonin, they were really kind of above everybody else. Whereas I think these two right now are in a much more highly competitive kind of classics generation coming in. Uh, you get Remco coming back, Pitcock, some of these younger guys coming up as well. And I think we're just in for a really exciting five, six, seven years in the classics, across, even even into the Ardennes as well. Uh, you're seeing a lot of the uh, kind of GC guys putting a bigger focus on on the one-day classics as well. So we're seeing riders who, who race more, they race more aggressively, and they race more often on the bigger dates. So we're in a sweet spot right now. So I think it's lar- larger, it's going to be a bigger hole than what Cancellara and Bonin were back in their heyday. I think uh, for me, the one thing that really stood out with the Cancellara Bonin thing was the way that they were both very different riders. So you had, you know, the massive motor of Cancellara versus kind of the more sprintery Bonin. And at the moment, Van der Poel and Van Aert aren't so distinguishable. I mean, you could you could argue that Van Aert is more of like the big motor kind of rider, but I think the rivalry could have added kind of depth if the two of them were a little more differentiated as well as what I would like to see is a bit more, uh, a bit more kind of uh, a bit more heat between the two. Uh, I think they, they respect each other a lot and they're very polite to each other a lot. I, I want to see some, you know, some kind of hot takes and some, some poking at each other. Mm, hot takes. I want to see that as well. Yeah. Maybe some like um, real sarcastic comments out there in the media. Although I don't know if the Flemish are known uh, for their sarcasm. I don't think the Dutch are particularly known for their human humor. I just flew in from Arnhem and my arms are very tired. But don't um, I I'm psyched about this rivalry. And, you know, I need to go back and look at the age at which point the uh, Cancellara Bonin rivalry really started to kick up when they really started going monument for monument. I believe they were still in their sort of early to mid-20s. I mean, the cool thing about that rivalry was its longevity. And yeah, there was this differentiation between the two riders. The thing that set it back was that, boy, towards the end there, it seemed like every other year, one guy or the other guy was injured. You know, it was like Bonin would crash right at the beginning of the classic season and hurt himself. So then Cancellara would go on to sweep it. And then the next year, Cancellara would crash and then Bonin would go on to sweep it. So there were health issues. Um, but yeah, it, it always felt like 
everyone else was kind of racing for second place. You know, your Sepp Van Marks and uh, Greg Van Avermaets and um, even Quick Step, you know, with some of those years where Cancellara was really firing and you'd saw poor, um, oh, who was the tall bloke who would always have to like mark him out and get beaten sprint or who would just get dusted. So I don't know who this generation Sepp Van Marka is going to be. It's probably going to be Sepp Van Marka. That's probably who it's uh, going to be. Jason Bonin and Cancellara around now. He's chasing what Van Aert. Uh, guys, thank you so much for your takes and your insight in this week's podcast. Uh, we are going to get to Andy Hood's interview with Luca Guercialena talking all about Trek Segafredo's big weekend of dominance. Uh, Jim and Andy, I will let you get back to your respective afternoons. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, a triple crown weekend. I mean, what was the bigger surprise for you? Was it uh, uh, Jasper winning down the Via Roma or Elisa kind of ro rolling away from SD Works? No, I think uh, it's clear that, uh, that uh, the victory of Jasper is the most unexpected because uh, we were focusing on Sanremo, that's clear. We have a couple of, of leaders with, uh, with Jasper and uh, Vincenzo. But uh, we knew that with the big guns over there, the, the possibility to win was a bit reduced. But uh, at the end, uh, Jasper took the only uh, solution and option he has, and, uh, and he made it. So that was, uh, was really, really amazing. Um, so far, we are happy clearly also for Elisa and, and Matteo, but uh, obviously the Milan Sanremo victory uh, has been really something unbelievable. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of how uh, Fabian Cancellara won that San Remo quite a few years ago. Was that kind of on the back of your mind when you guys were talking tactics? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, we knew that with Fabian, that was the, one of the possibilities to win. And uh, when we saw that Caleb uh, was still in the in the game uh, on the downhill of Poggio, we told the Asper that the only option uh, he has was just to, to make one single attack all, all in. And uh, that was the only possibility really to win the race. And uh, he was strong enough to have good legs and, uh, and make the good one because I think he, he really made a great action because still they were chasing. So uh, it was super good. And then also he had the possibility to uh, cool down a bit when uh, Kag Anderson uh, came back. And at that moment, he proved how, how strong he is and how strong mentally he is because he was able to keep calm and then just focus on the final sprint. So really nice. Yeah, how big was that uh, for Jasper? I mean, I know he's won, uh, of course, he won uh, Omloop and uh, Kuhn, uh in his career, but you know, his first monument, he's been kind of, he was always like the, the young prince and waiting there in Belgium cycling. How big was that for him to, to get that victory? Well, I think very big, very big. Uh, on our side, obviously, we, we all think we deserve it because we know how such an hard worker he, a worker he is and how much uh, loyal he is uh, with the teammates and so on. But as you said, he's, uh, often uh, has been, he, he was there close to win, um, more often top 10, more often top 5, but never a big one, despite obviously Kürne or uh, at Newsblad. But um, finally, yeah, finally Saturday he was able to make the, the, the great win he deserved and I think that can, can be big for him and big for the team and absolutely for the future that's proved that uh, he has the chance even to beat the, the, the big guys so with, with more uh, confidence I think he can be really up there more often even in the big guys with the big classics 
Yeah, I mean, how is it for a team? You know, you guys invest so much in a rider. Is it just having faith in a rider that someday they'll get that big win? I mean, I've, we've seen teams in the past back riders for years and never get that lucky break. And then uh, sometimes it comes through, and that really happened with uh, Jasper on Saturday, didn't it? Well, uh, yeah, sometimes it's complicated because obviously when, when you're investing in a young kid, you always hope that he's delivering results in a very short terms. But in case of, uh, of Jasper, uh, as he turned pro with us, the relation is also a personal relation with the, between him and the team and the, and the, and the bike brand. And, uh, and obviously this, this is paying all the, the confidence that we, we gave him in the past. And uh, it's true, sometimes it doesn't happen, but uh, luckily for us, with, with him, with Pedersen and so on, or Molema, they, 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 they always pay back all the confidence we gave we gave them so probably our way to work uh, is really based on the on the confidence to the athlete and uh, we always take the best out from them and we, we have seen also with Richie Port last season so I think that really is something that uh, maybe is, is, is in our DNA and, and it works out very well I mean you guys you guys have had a, such a fantastic start to the season uh, what is it seven wins already uh, yep. really against uh you know, in some of the biggest races. I mean, there's been a lot of being made this season about Wout Van Aert and Matthew Vanderpool. You know, how do you guys approach the race with those two in these races coming up, especially in the classics? Do you approach the race differently when they're in the race, or do you still have your kind of uh, your own traditional plan? I mean, when, when you make a, a strategy, when you make a, a tactic, clearly you need always to analyze which are the competitors at the, at the start. And when uh, when Vought and... Uh, and Mathieu are there, obviously, as well as Alaphilippe, you're always going to be very attentive on their move because they, the riders that are able to win on a sprint, they were able with a, to win with an uh, attack from, from far. But so far, I think uh, we have almost always riders that are ready to, to be competitive. And as I said, I mentioned Jasper or, or, or Pedersen or Stones and so on. So that's, that's exactly uh, the, 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 the moment in which we discuss how to find a way to beat them, you know, and uh, clearly you analyze what they can do and how they can do it, and uh, and then you you always try to find a moment in which you can take advantage and, and make your move. We know that they are super strong, but uh, so far we prove also that uh, we are able to win uh, Omlop, uh, Gambergem, and so far Milan Sanremo. So it always matters to to be attentive and use just the power you have and. Uh, just keep your uh, be humble and keep your feet on the ground, and uh, that is the way to to beat those big guys. Yeah, it certainly has worked so far. Now, Luke, I know you worked uh, with Fabian for many years. Um, do you see a comparison between Vanderpool and uh, Well Van Aert as kind of like the Tom Bonin uh, Cancellata rivalry from ten years ago? Yeah, yeah, it's very similar, very similar scenario. I mean, uh, they're both big guys; they they know one to each other since. Uh, since a while, as they were doing both uh, cyclocross, um, obviously, yeah, for sure, you see more uh, vote uh, sprinting and time trialing, uh, while uh, Mathieu looks like more uh, sprinting and attacking from far. But uh, yeah, there's a, there's a, a very good comparison with that, and they're, they're also very young. So for some years, they will be uh, competitive. Mm, I see even a better generation than that of Fabian and, and Tom because uh, Fabian and Tom really were the, the two guys that they fight very hard uh, till uh, Peter Sagan came 
while over here, uh, as said, you have many, you have many. I mean, you, you have uh, them, you have Alaphilippe, uh, you have uh, Yeshi, you will have uh, Van der Poel, uh, uh, sorry, Venepol when, when you will be back. I can put in all, uh, also uh, Pedersen and Steuben. So there's really a generation that is uh, very, very competitive and uh, there's a bunch of young kids that are really surprising. So I think uh, we are looking uh, to a good five, six years of, of, of uh, funny cycling. Yeah, and of course the other card you have to play is uh, Mats Peterson. Um, you know he had a great, uh, great year last year, even despite the COVID, um, and obviously he's going well already. Do you guys that that kind of combination of Jasper and Mats must be an ideal scenario for you guys? How do you plan on playing those two off of each other and using their strengths against uh, the classics? I, I think that the lucky point for us is that the, the guys are really friends, so they they love to help one to each other and try to get competitive. Uh, as a team, you know, and that's really a clear advantage. I think we invested and build up the, the group, so that's that's very important. Obviously, the, the, the hope is always to, to, to overnumber the others, so try to be in a, in the, in the good position and in the good uh, final with two of, of our riders instead of just one, and that is probably one of the options to, 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 uh, to beat the other riders. I mean, it's a tactic that for some years uh, the Koenig uh, used, so I think that... Uh, we know that that's a way to, to have more possibility to win the races. Uh, so that's more or less what, what we are uh, looking for, uh, even if probably we are not the top level as a Van der Poel Van Aert, but uh, I, think, I think we are not that far. Hmm, interesting, yeah. Um, you know, how was it in the in the team, you know, after uh, Conchalata retired, you had uh, Degen Kolb come on for a few years. Was, was it kind of frustrating with John in terms of maybe you didn't have the results that you were hoping for, or... Is the team simply just kind of flowing better right now? Uh, I, I think that when we when we hired John, uh, we knew it was coming from a, from an accident, and uh, uh, John was competitive, but um, he didn't uh, recover so fast as we thought. So we had some uh, some years in which we were struggling to be really in the in the top game uh, with Mats and, and Jasper growing, but still not be at the point but uh, so far I think that in 19 uh, when uh, when Mats won the, the championship then the world championship I think that that was really the turning point in, in, in which we knew that the, the young guys in which invest were um, coming to the to the to, to the big game and uh, and so even John could have been uh, a bit um, you know let's call it substitute on a, on a good way because John was a great guy and he delivered us one of the best victory of the Tour de France with the with the cobble stage, mm. so I, we have always good memory with him. But obviously, for the classic, when you pass from from Fabian, uh, in which essentially you are competitive everywhere, and then you you struggle to be in the in the top five, then obviously it's a, it's a bit frustrating. But that's sport, you know. You need to build up, and then uh, there's a moment in which you go back and you start again from scratch. So I truly believe that that's just the the nice thing of sports. We always need to be challenging ourselves. Indeed, uh, and Luca, you know, you've been involved in the sport for a long time, and and we're seeing these, you know, very young riders having big successes across all parts of cycling. Uh, you know, nineteen, twenty, you know, Pagacar, Evenepoel, all these kids. Um, normally, in the classics, it's the older riders. You know, it takes a few years to kind of get that depth and that strength for the classics. Do you expect these young riders to kind of come in and really leave their mark? I mean, we're already seeing you know Vanderpool and Van Aert are still relatively young. Do you do you see that young trend continuing in the classics, or do you expect the older, more experienced riders to have more chances? Uh, 
I think that with the generation we are uh, we are talking to is uh, they will be very competitive. Even the young guys, they will make it harder for the for the for the eldest uh, because I think this is a generation that start very early with uh, working with the power, working with you know a strict nutrition plan or stuff like this. So I think that they turn pro ready to be competitive versus what was in the past in which you know many they start to discover the attention to the details when they were over 25 let's say um, so I, I truly believe that even in the next classics this, uh, this bunch of kids will be very very competitive for sure experience is something that that everybody needs um, but uh, it's true that when the, the, the power you have is, is, uh, is so far from, from the average then clearly you, you can make the difference anyway yeah, and I also wanted to ask you about uh, Quinn Simmons, you know, our American young writer who's had a little bit of controversy over the last uh, six or eight months. Uh, just a, a sporting question first. Um, you know, Quinn coming into the, the monuments for the first time, uh, you know, what do you see him? He's still young. What is he, 19 still, I think. How do you see him developing, and what's his future in the classics? I think Quinn is probably one of the best talent I work with. Uh, he's very strong, very strong, and uh, I still need to learn a lot about the, the race tactics and uh, and getting experience, especially because he turned pro from the junior category. But so far, I think he, he has in his course the capacity to to turn in one of the of the guy for the for the big ones, you know. Um, I think that uh, what what he means now is just to have a a full World Tour uh, season because unlucky for him uh, in 2020 there was the COVID situation so he, he cannot really be on, on the right pace uh, having a, a full uh, a full season and we, we saw it this year at the Tirreno Adriatico you know it was the first uh, uh, time that he was able to make a seven days race uh, without problems mm. so I think uh, that's uh, that's just a part of the, the process to, to let him uh, making experience and Build up his uh, his condition, but if you analyze that in the in the last TT, he had the fourth best time, if I'm not wrong, in the, at the first intermediate. It proved that the guy has, uh, has has capacity, you know, and I and he proved it also in Strade Bianche. I think he was there with the big with the big guys, and even in Sanremo, despite the 300 kilometers, he was uh, up front till uh, till the podium. So I I think that the, this guy has a he has a bright future in front of him in uh, in cycling. Do you see him racing a Grand Tour this year, Luca? Yeah, yeah. In our plan is to have him on uh, on a Grand Tour. Clearly, uh, we need to be very respectful about his age because he's 19 and we can't burn him out. But I think he has the he has the capacity to start the Grand Tour, and especially we need to give him the time to to make mistakes, the time to to learn, and the time to to reach the condition that can make him better and better on the one day race that because we all know that participating to a Grand Tour very often is, we call it, we change your, we change your engine. So that's what we would like from him. Now, obviously, uh, Quinn last year was involved in online controversy. Uh, the team uh, suspended him for a while. What kind of happened behind the scenes, Luca, with, with Quinn? Uh, what, what did you tell him? How did the team kind of work with him to kind of turn the page on this? Because... You know, a lot of people on social media are not big fans of Quinn Simmons right now, uh, but he is a young man, and, and I can assume he's he's trying to learn from this experience. What happened behind the scenes with Quinn this year? Well, I would say that obviously he's a 19 years old boy, and uh, every everybody can make mistakes, and I think he he, he did a mistake, and uh, and he was hit very very hard. 
from from that. So I think that uh, um, by himself already understood that sometimes you need to think two three times how you how you want to explain a concept, and uh, and I think that he, he got it. From our side, I think that what is very important is that we stay close to him, especially because he's a talent, and he need to know that being a talent and turning in a champion, as we hope, then he has even more duty than just winning races. And I think that uh, you need to know that. Um, that being even an ex-world champion, it means that you have even more duty than a champion that, uh, to, to, to the public, to the fans, to the sponsors and everything. So I think he, he know it. From our side, on top of just getting close to him and, and, uh, and let him understand how to communicate or, uh, or how to, to deal with certain stuff, I think uh, uh, the most important thing is really to have him focusing on the, on the cycling life, on the cycling... Uh, performance that is uh, what is paid for and just focus on that i think that's the that's the most important thing and uh, and, and i truly believe he understood it he, even with his teammates and so on his approach is a way different so i think that uh it was just let's say like this a part of the the the, the difficulties to let turn a junior into into a world tour rider mm. you know uh, that's something that uh, that can happen um, because anyway, as I said, we are talking about almost a junior uh, thrown in a big game with a lot of media attention around and everybody still thinking, uh, not anymore that he's an 18 years old boy, but simply that uh, he's a world rider, you know. So I think that uh, it's a process ongoing, but I think we will be successful because Queen is a, is a good guy and I think that uh, for sure he will be a good rider. Did, did the team offer him some sort of sensitivity training or did he work with some sort of uh, experts or counselors to kind of deal with some of these issues that came up? Yeah, yeah, we went through, uh, through a process, even for the whole team, you know, for the training, uh, training media uh, to, to really understand which are the tricky points in which sometimes we, we fall in. Uh, but this I talk also as a manager. Uh, when you go discussing some topics on the on the social media, so we had a full training. He, he even went uh, individually over some certain situation with the communication group at track, and uh, and I think that's worth uh, worth the work because uh, I think his approach already is really uh, changed and is really focusing on the on the performance side, and that's what uh, what we need. Will, will what happen? Will will it affect his future with Trek Segafredo? I mean, his contract is up this year. Uh, so far, I think that we would like to, to have him performing. And then I think that first we would like to judge that because that's the most important thing for the rider. And then, uh, and then we will analyze also all the other decisions. But, you know, at track, we, we always would like to uh, make people better, you know, and even help the people that can have a problem. So I, I truly believe that uh, there's no doubt that this is what JB, so I'm talking about the president of track, is always tell us. Mm. You know, it's easy to it's easy to work in easy in easy condition, but we need to prove that we are good when there's not easy condition, and I think that's the case. And I think that we should take out the best out of it. So uh, that's my job, and that's what uh, we are dealing for. And I think at track, always always we have to to be attentive and uh, and find the solution when there's difficult times, not just be uh, happy and funny when when the good, the things are going good. Yeah, fair enough. Complicated situation. And finally, not, uh, last but certainly not least, uh, the women's team is having a great start as well. Big win uh, this weekend. Um, 
how is the team coming together going into this really important classic season? It's just, uh, you know, the next several weeks, it's all stacked up with these big races. Uh, how confident are you in the, in the team performing over the next several weeks? I, I'm, I'm quite confident. I mean, last season we proved that we were able to, to reach the, the top ranking in almost all the rankings. So I think the girls are very motivated. But as usual, each season is different. And this year we have seen a couple of teams progressing very fast. So putting us in a, in a in trouble, let's say, or anyway, to be very competitive. So uh, we are looking in the in the classics just to 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 be ready to confirm our potential. And uh, I think we had a couple of good addition to the team, even in matter of experience. So I truly believe that we can uh, we can be there and and fight for for uh, for for each victories. But we know that is the the the. the, the Confirming the the last season is the, the difficult part, you know, because uh, when you win everything, then the risk is that you just be, you know, accommodating and be happy. Uh, but uh, that's why with the sport director we are working very hard on the girls just to keep going and uh, be focused on making results. Because obviously we have. Um... Big races coming up, maybe hopefully Paris-Roubaix, maybe next year a women's tour to France. How big is that going to be for women's racing? And do you see those two races as kind of a game changer for women's cycling? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think uh, I, I, I live the last two years the women's cycling and I see how, how fast it progresses and how, how much attention more there is around that. And uh, if we will add Paris-Roubaix and uh, Tour de France, I truly believe that it's going to be the, the game changer. You know, then for sure the attention will be so high that, uh, that the women's cycling really will reach uh, a, good, uh, a good level to compare the, with, the, with the men's cycling. So I think that... Uh, that for sure we need to go in that direction and I even think that that will be better for men's cycling because after a while when the world cycling will grow up we will be uh, balancing that with, uh, with with some you know uh, difficult situation we have in men's cycling where there's so many teams and, uh, and most of them probably they even don't have sense to, to be anymore men, men teams but it's better they turn in a woman team and support women cycling because even on, on matter of visibility they will have more visibility than, than not with the men cycling so I think that uh, there will be a big changing in, in cycling in general in the next 3-5 uh, years well it's great Luca I know you have to run to another phone call more Zoom meetings I can imagine <laughs> so uh, yes, we'll let you go exactly. I appreciate the time and uh, best of luck for uh, the classics coming up mate. appreciate it Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot and uh, good evening, everybody. All right. Thanks, Luca. Ciao.